Let us pray. Lord, we need you this morning. May your spirit penetrate our hearts, open our eyes as we look into your life once again. Let us not take the encounters of your life lightly, but help us to see who you truly are, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, the Son of God. Be with us this morning in this brief, brief time as you look into such a a large portion of Scripture. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise. May I honor you now with my lips. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the age-old question that many have sought to answer throughout the centuries. In fact, some religions believe that Jesus was simply a good teacher. If you've ever studied other religions like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Islam, Others believe that he was a good man, maybe just a prophet. There are those that believe that Jesus is somewhat of a marketing ploy. I mean, years ago, there were some companies, if you remember, they were making t-shirts. And and it would say, Jesus is my homeboy. And there will be hats and mugs. Post posters. Maybe you remember this one. Jesus is my co-pilot. Believe it or not, I was as I was walking into a Christian bookstore again many years ago, they actually had action figures of Jesus and bobbleheads. Right? Everyone really has been trying to figure out who Jesus is throughout many generations. Now, personally, before I was saved, when I was was a teenager, before I came to saving faith, the pressing question in my head was, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I'm thankful a lot of people within the church and also outside the church were able to walk with me and disciple me to teach me and show me who Jesus was. You know, before I started working at the church full-time, I was working at a bank. And so I had a coworker one day approach me. She knew I was pursuing ministry. And so she came to me with this question. She said, J.D., why does it seem like Jesus doesn't want me to get promoted? And I sort of laughed. And she continued, she said, I pray, I read my Bible, I go to church. She says, Jesus wants me to be happy, right? And of course, we've had, we had a joking relationship, and I would say, well, you know, Jesus is not a genie. Jesus is not Santa Claus. And she'd laugh, and, and you know, we, we joke around. And to, to make a long story short, what I mentioned to her is that maybe, maybe, we need to start looking at Jesus under a different light. And it begins with what the Bible really says about Jesus. That's where we want to look. If you want to know who Jesus is, we need to go to our Bibles. And so maybe some of us have been thinking the same thing. Or 
maybe we need a good reminder of who Jesus is this morning. Let me submit to you that no matter what you think of Jesus today, our passage is going to help us see who the real Jesus is. Therefore, my aim this morning is this. Jesus is defined by, the, by his interaction with the crowds. Jesus is defined by his interactions with the crowds. What our passage does for us this morning is define who Jesus is, like I just mentioned, but really it leaves us with how we should respond to Jesus. It leaves us with how we should respond to Jesus. So again, my question is, who is Jesus? But after seeing Jesus' life unfold in our text this morning, how are you going to respond once you see who Jesus is? And so in Mark, Mark has been painting, or Mark paints this picture of four different uh, types of groups. There's four different stories, four different vignettes that I'm going to go through, and it, it's fairly long, and I have about maybe under an hour to go through this, so bear with me. But before I jump right into our text, I want us just to give a, a background of what's going on, just so we could have a sense of Mark's account. Now, Mark's reporting really continues here in chapter 3, okay? So Mark really is, he's trying to, to give an eyewitness account right? From Peter, the apostle Peter, he's trying to give an eyewitness account of who Jesus is. And so Pastor Rod and the overall theme of Mark is Jesus, the son of God. And at the end of really of of chapter two, leading into chapter three of, of what Pastor Rod talked about last week, we find Jesus claiming that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are not happy. We find Jesus healing the man with a withered hand, which is somewhat of the final straw for the Pharisees, as we heard last week. And so in verse, look at chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Their hardness in their hearts, in verse 6, was showing. And so the Pharisees wanted, wanted to team up with the very people that they, that they opposed. I'm sorry, the Herodians. And so the idea was shocking because these two, two groups of people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they were a political and religious group. And so now there is a political motivation to kill Jesus. Is that me? Okay. Hatred from his enemies grew so much that for the next year or so, these two groups of people would conspire to kill Jesus. And Jesus, being the wisest person on earth, knew that his time would eventually come. But right now, in chapter 3, this wasn't the right time. This wasn't the right time. Therefore, we find that Jesus withdraws from the religious leaders. But in trying to get away from the religious leaders, we read that a crowd follows him, which puts us in the first point of our passage this morning. It's what I like to call the fans of Jesus, the fans of Jesus. First, what we find here in our text 
is the extent of Jesus' popularity. The extent of Jesus' popularity. He was trying, he was trying to ret retreat from the religious leaders. Just packed in and, and they're like this, and 
there's someone in your face and there's someone behind you and you're just acting because everyone just wanted to go home. Except these people are not wanting to go home. They are wanting to go to Jesus. And so the thought here, look, look, look what's happening as this text unfolds. Just look at the distinction. What we just read from the Pharisees and how they were conspiring to kill Jesus. And now the crowds are coming to Jesus. So here's a picture. We find broken creation. The crowds of people are running to his feet. Broken creation is running to the feet of Jesus. The crowds were coming to Jesus. I want you to take note. The crowds were coming to Jesus. Not, ne not necessarily for Jesus. But it says what in verse 10. It says they were coming to touch him. They were coming to touch him for healing. Now there is no physical limitation beyond what Jesus could do. And he shows that here in our text. And if you think through chapter 1 and chapter 2, whether it's a man with leprosy or a paralytic in chapter 2, or someone with a withered hand in chapter 3, Jesus met their physical needs. But we know, ultimately, the real reason why he's here. He's not here to heal. He's not here to, to meet our physical needs. Jesus came, ultimately, to heal dead man's heart. A dead man's heart. I want you to know that physical healing can only take you so far. Listen, if your heart is never healed, listen to me, if, if your heart is never healed from the darkness of sin, regardless of being physically healed by God himself, if you never come to saving faith in him, you will eventually want to crucify him in the end. And we're going to see that as the Gospel of Mark unfolds before our eyes. Next, we find, really, I see it as the extent of Jesus' humility. The extent of Jesus' humility. We find the extent of his power, we find the extent of his humility. Jesus' power was so clear even the, the demons recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. Going back again, I'm going to reference chapter 1. I'm just going to read it to you. Chapter 1, verses 23 to 26 says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you done with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Church, it, it's a scary thing when Satan's followers, the unclean spirit, see Jesus as the Son of God, yet the world hates and rejects him. Look, take note again, the Pharisees who memorized scripture, who had pristine theology, wanted to kill the very person they studied all their life. Yet, it was the demons, the unclean spirits, that recognized Jesus as a son of God. However, here's what is more important in our text. Jesus had 
to silence them. I believe it shows this in the room. Jesus had to silence them. And the question is, why? Why did Jesus silence the unclean spirits? Now think about this. This was really the only the, the only the beginning of his ministry. So Jesus knew that his ministry is not going to conclude here. There's more time. He needs to make disciples. He needs to teach more. He needs to eventually die in the end. There's so much work to do. So much gospel to proclaim. And quite frankly, Jesus would fulfill his, his mission on his own terms. And on his own authority. Not on Satan's terms. That's the reason for silencing. In other words, Jesus is saying to the demons, I know you know who I am. But you're not going to stop me from completing the work of God through my own death. You're not going to stop me because I'm going to that cross. That's humble Jesus saying his time has not come. Only Jesus can look around and see the hardened hearts of the Pharisees. The multitudes coming to him for various motives. Only Jesus could see the demons calling him out. by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, that's humility. That is true gospel humility. And that's what Jesus is showing here. Jesus, Jesus' mission was to overthrow the darkness that has overcome the world through Satan and usher in the heavenly kingdom. And that time would come, but not right now. Popular, powerful, yet humble Jesus we see here. In the next scene, we find, we find Jesus fulfilling his own mission by calling his disciples, which I call as the, fo the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus. As the crowds grew bigger, we find that Jesus retreats to the mountain. In Luke 6, 12, Referring to this same scene, it says that Jesus prayed all night before choosing the disciples. And so what we find here is Jesus using his sovereign authority in calling his disciples. It's not a normal calling, but really it's a calling from the Messiah himself. It was a calling to be part of whom he was. To be, to be a part of the greatest ministry here on earth. And so what we find here is the call of the disciples to minister. The call of the disciples to minister. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him, to those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Now that word to appoint, or that phrase, literally means to make or to create. It's, it's the same word in, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament, the Genesis 1 1, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that's the same meaning. Jesus was creating his disciples, he was making them from nothing into something. He was making them, really, he was giving them a task, he was assigning a task to minister, and basically he would create. 12, 
who eventually changed the world upside down with the gospel. Now note here, as Jesus was calling his disciples, Jesus was not calling a 4.0 seminary grad student who mastered their preaching class. Jesus had a lot of work to do with these guys. This was only the beginning. And so part of Jesus' ministry with these guys was hands-on seminary training. I mean, at this point, the disciples didn't get it yet. They're like, oh, he's just calling me. I'm like, all right. Well, you're calling us. We want to follow you. But eventually, through his life and through his teachings, Jesus is going to teach them. And it's through his own rag, and it is through Jesus' own ragtag group of imperfect men, really, where the barrier of culture, language, throughout all generations would be broken by the proclamation of the gospel. Think about this. This is why we are a church today. It's because Jesus was calling his disciples so that they could go out and preach the gospel. It is why so many churches have been established. It is the same reason why we are bringing the word, specifically how to teach the word to other parts of the world. We are bringing word ministry to those in need. And in turn, our hope is that the pastors and the church leaders who get this teaching are able to preach the gospel. Your prayers and your support go a long way, Gateway. Look at Jesus' mission in, in uh, chapter 1. He's fulfilling his mission in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was preparing the disciples to minister so that they could repent and believe, so that others can repent and believe in the gospel. Now next in this scene, we not only find Jesus' call to minister, we also find his call to submit. His call to submit. And what I'm thinking through here is, is his interaction with Judas or Judas in his life. His call to submit. Now Mark, just like other gospel writers, perfectly places various accounts in our text. Okay, so think about this. The Bible is brutally honest, and Mark shows the integrity in his reporting by including the whole list of disciples here, right? In almost every list of the apostles, Judas is listed usually as last, but also his betrayal is also listed. And so, you know, as, as I studied Jesus in Bible school and also seminary, you know, I always ask myself, why, why, why include Judas? Why give him a name? And if you put it simply, really, it's a part of it's it's a it's a fulfillment of Jesus' ministry. It's important to see why he's in there. But really, it's important to see what Jesus is doing. And Mark is really taking that into account. Jesus is willfully submitting himself to be betrayed, to be beaten, to be mocked, and eventually killed. And it all starts with the darkness in the heart of Judas. It all started with the darkness in the heart of Judas. Jesus knew 
that Judas would eventually betray him out of darkness. And so what we have here is we have the Son of God submitting to his own death. There is blood all over Judas' hands from the very beginning. Let me say that again. There is blood all over Judas' hands from the, very, from the very beginning, yet Jesus obeys. Now I want to touch briefly on verses 20 to 21. It's what we call, really, it's like a sandwich text. You have the piece of bread, and there's some meat in the middle, and the piece of bread again. So that's what's happening here. So in verses 20 to 21, let me read it to you. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So after appointing his disciples, we find that Jesus returns home. And we find the crowd once again. And, and he went home. And when we think about home, we think of home as, as a place of, of comfort. But what do you think he found at home? Well, he found that the crowds were gathering once again. That it was so overly populated that he could not eat. And after spending time with his beloved disciples, Jesus' family, his own blood, had the audacity to call him crazy. I'm going to talk more about this later. But from the perspective of, of Jesus' family, I guess you have to try and understand why they called him crazy at this point. But think about our text. Okay? Jesus' family, they're saying, look, you're, you're lunatic, you're crazy. And here, here's the reason I'm thinking. J Jesus had tens of thousands of people following him. He was, in his family's eyes, causing the religious leaders of the day to, to conspire to kill him by any means necessary. Even, even teaming up with political leaders. And so his family probably did not want to be shamed at this point. They're saying, you know, just, just calm down, Jesus. And so you sense the scene here, friends, that the pressure for Jesus is getting heavier as the story unfolds. The crowds, the physical toll, he was hungry. His family was trying to restrain him, even calling him lunatic. That's pressure. And so maybe you're experiencing pressure this morning. The pressures of home life, the bills, there's marriage, there's children, there's decisions that need to be made. Or maybe you're experiencing the pressures of work. There's deadlines, there's office conflict. Whatever it is, I want you to know that Jesus knows about pressure, and we see that in our text. Therefore, you can go to a Savior, to the Savior, and present your requests to him. It may not all make sense at this moment, but find comfort in Christ and not in life situations. Jesus faced the pressures of life, and it only gets worse. We've looked at, at Jesus' fans. We've looked at his followers. Now in the next scene, we find really the foes of Jesus, his enemies, the foes of Jesus. Now, the point we find in this scene really is a response from the religious leaders, from the scribes, from all that Jesus was doing up until this point. And so, the first thing we see here is really a response from the scribes, a response from the scribes. As the beginning of in the beginning of chapter 3, again, we find that Jesus saw the hardness of their hearts of the religious leaders. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. This is Jesus. And he looked around them with anger, grieved their hardness of heart. 
So Jesus, again, he was preaching the gospel. He was, he was healing the lame and sick. He was casting out demons. He was submitting to his eventual death. And here are the response from the scribes. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. That's their conclusion. That Jesus is Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Basically, the scribes are claiming that Jesus is possessed. He's controlled by Satan. He's ruler of the demon world. Strangely enough, as you remember a couple of verses ago, the demons were calling to Jesus the Son of God. Yet the scribes were saying, You're a demon yourself. You're Beelzebul. Friends, this is how a hardened heart looks like. As you can see Jesus and all that he's doing, you can look perfect one in Jesus Christ, yet call him evil. That's a hard one. And so, the most powerful statement Jesus can make is with his words. And here's his response. Here's his response. And he called to them, he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, itself that kingdom cannot stand. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is turning their logic upside down. He's saying, why would Satan act against himself? If Satan were fighting against Satan, he will not stand. Satan wants chaos among the kingdom. He wants to enslave humans to sin. And so Jesus really brings it home, so to speak. Look at verse 25. And if a house is divided against himself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, and it's divided. He cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. If there's a vision in the home or within the family, failure is always the result. That's what he's saying. Division in the ranks of Satan's army will not stand. In other words, Jesus is asking, why would Satan, why would, why would Satan want this? And so Jesus goes on further. Look at 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So let me do my best to really explain this, okay? Satan is the strong man in this passage. Satan is the strong man. The darkness in this world is his house. His house is filled with sin, death, demons, evil, and wickedness. But hear this, only one man can bind, can bind the strong man. Only one man can bind the strong man. Let me take a quick detour to Genesis 3, verse 14 to 15. And the scene really is after the fall of man. Let me read that to you. Let me read it to you. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now here's the gospel, friends. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you, that's Satan, shall bruise his heel. That is the cross. 
So Satan brought darkness into this world through the fall. Therefore, he's the prince of darkness. But here's the thing. Satan will bruise Jesus' body. And Jesus will experience a temporary death on the cross. But Jesus will conquer Satan. Jesus will kill the strong man. Jesus will plunder his house. Jesus entered the strong man's world. And he resisted everything thrown at him. Jesus is the stronger man. And the religious leaders, they, they knew the Old Testament. Yet they could not put two and two together. They were blind. Which I believe, really, is the context we find here is rejection of the Holy Spirit. This is how Jesus respond, responds to those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Look at back to Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Take note here, Jesus begins with truly, meaning I assure you, or amen. He's really setting this up. He's, he's affirming what he's about to say is true and reliable. First, this is what he declares, that all sins and blasphemies can be forgiven because of the gracious forgiveness and mercy of God. All sins can be forgiven. Jesus makes that clear. All sinners can find the forgiveness of God if they come to him in faith and repentance. And here's the reason why context is important. It's why we teach it to other pastors around the world. This passage or theological reference is probably one of the most abused and misunderstood passages if we fail to understand the context. Okay? So first, we learn that Jesus is talking to who? He's talking to the scribes. Second, the scribes were expressing defiant hostility toward Jesus in spite of all the evidence in the world that he is the Son of God. So he's talking to the scribes, and the scribes don't believe in him. And so he, there, there's a verb there in verse 22 and 30. It says, they were saying. And that's a verb really in the imperfect tense. It means they were continually saying. They were consistently saying these things at Jesus, that he has an unclean spirit. Therefore, the warning is that if they were to continue down this road, they would never be forgiven by God. If they were to continue down this road of not believing, of insulting Jesus, that they would never be forgiven by God. That is blasphemy. Blasphemy is a sin that knowingly insults, mocks, and dishonors God. Let me say that again. Blasphemy is a sin that knowingly insults, mocks, and dishonors God. It's the complete opposite of praising God. Some other definitions, just so we can get a better understanding. John Piper says this, The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance, which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. I like what Sproul says on this topic. He says, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, 
If one is worried they have committed the unpardonable sin, I would say that worrying about it is one of the clearest evidences that they have not committed this sin. For those who commit it are so hardened in their hearts that they do not care that they commit it. So, let this be a warning for us that walking in flat out rejection of God would lead to God eventually hardening our hearts toward himself. But also let this be an encouragement to us, dear friends, that Jesus is willing and able to forgive all of our most grievous sins. Wherever you stand with God today, there is hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen the fans of Jesus, we've seen his followers, we've seen his foes. Lastly, in our text, we find the family of Jesus. The family of Jesus. In 32, we find his family there once again. For 31, and his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now again, just I think a lot of us here, we're, we're, we're made up of, of various cultures. And so, in the same way in Hebrew culture, family was sacred. Family was everything. You are identified by your family in Hebrew culture. And so there's an obligation to family in all aspects of life, whether it's social, socially, economically, culturally. And so... When Jesus sees his family, I want, I want us to see that there is some weight in Jesus' response. It's what I call, really, it's, it's a warning. And, and Jesus really prioritizes his family. It's what I call the priority of family, the priority of family. And so Jesus has this warning, really. He, said, he answers it, who are my mother and my brothers? And, and the scene here is, is that he was looking around him. And he did not see his own family. He responded with a question, who are my mother and brothers? And, and again, the idea was that he, was, he, was, he had this searching look in Matthew's account of the same scene. Matthew says he was stretching out his hand toward his disciples, and he was pointing to them. He said, here's my mother and brothers. Here are my mother and brothers. Now, if you remember back in verses 20 and 21, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Right? They, they were trying to restrain him. He also experienced rejection, flat-out denial. I mean, the, the religious re leaders labeled him as a demon, demon. People were coming to him not as a brother, but as a healer. Therefore, what we find in this, in this question is that Jesus' family goes far more deeper than blood. Let me be clear, Jesus was not cutting ties to his family. We know that in John chapter 19 that Jesus acknowledges his mother on the cross. We know that his beloved brother James would be martyred for the sake of the gospel. In Mark 7, we find that Jesus puts strong emphasis on parenthood. So this is not a calling to break family ties. However, listen, I want you to know that following Christ will cause division for some of us even within our own families. Look, family is a gift to all of us, but it should never become our idol. Family is a gift to all of us, but it should never become our idol. Now here's the reason why Jesus said what he said. And Jesus really is making this bold statement as we conclude here. 
in such a sweeping statement in this passage. And I really find it as, as he finds it as, I find it as a priority of God's family, the priority of God's family. Look at verse 34. And, look, and looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And really, this is a blanket statement. He's saying, anyone who does the will of God is part of God's family. Jesus is saying, there is something that is far more satisfying, far more demanding, more dear than my immediate family. And they're right here with me. Our Christian relationship is characterized by our submission to God's will. In other words, obedience to the will of God portrays a fundamental, a fundamental relationship with God. Now, let me be clear. Obedience does not automatically put you in the family of God, but obedience is a sign that you are part of God's family. Let me say that again. Obedience does not automatically put you in the family of God, but obedience is a sign that you are part of God's family. Doing the will of God is experiencing family with God. And so the last question remains, what is the will of God in this passage? What, what are we talking about here? What is the will of God? Well, first, I want us to look at Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. We know that Jesus lived the perfect will of the Father. We know that when he prayed in the garden, as blood was running down his face, he says, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet he makes the statement. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was always submitting to the Father's will perfectly. One commentary put it, every beat of Christ's heart was giving to performing his Father's will. And so the greatest example that we have today is Christ submitting to God's will. He submitted his entire life to the point of death, even doing the will of God. Second, what is God's will for us? What is God's will for us, and how does it align with Jesus? Well, turn with me to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which really, I believe, again, it's another summary of God's will for us. Romans 12, 1 and 2, says, this is the Apostle Paul, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let me be clear, this is not the sovereign will of God or what he plans to do, but this is his revealed will in which what we are, in which what we are called to do as Christians here on earth. In other words, to align ourselves with Jesus and to be a part of God's family, we must live out Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's not always going to be perfect, right? We need to commit and submit our lives as a living sacrifice. We need to kill our sinful desires while at the same time worshiping Him, being influenced by the Word of God. And that is the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. 
To put it simply, to put it simply, God's will is this, is to hear the word and do it. That's what brings us together in God's family, is to hear the word of God and do it. Hearing the word and applying it to our lives. We're together this morning because we are united really under the gospel. We hear the word this morning and do it. That's the will of God. It's going to look different as we live life together. Because we are imperfect people trying to do God's will together as a family. So let me conclude here by asking you the same question I started with. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I'm going to show you as we conclude here how Jesus sees you. Turn with me to check to Mark 14. And asking who Jesus is, I'm going to show you how Jesus sees you. Now, generally speaking, it's safe to say that these four groups of people were present leading up to the cross where Jesus died. It may not be the exact same people, but we get the idea. Okay? So look at chapter 14, verse 43. We find his followers. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clothes from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. I mean, they were all there. Look at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warning himself, she looked at him and said, You, were, you also were with the, the Nazarene Jesus. And this is Peter. But he denied it, saying, I neither know, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And we all know the story that after the third time, Jesus, I mean, Peter broke down and wept. So we see his followers. But we also see his fans. Look at chapter 15, verse 8. We see the crowd. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And we know how the crowd responded. What did they say? They said, Crucify him. Crucify him. Those were Jesus' fans. But also we see his enemies. Look at verse, chapter 15, verse 31. We see his foes. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. And so the religious leaders were mocking him. Those were his enemies once again. They were at the foot of the cross. But in verse 40, we also find his family. There are also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, younger of Joseph and, and Salome. How? And in, in John chapter 19, verse 25, it points to Jesus' mother, Mary, being at the cross as well. So we see, again, the four different groups here. It's the very same groups were all present at the cross and many others. Yet it is at the cross, listen to me dear friends, it is at the cross where Jesus utters these words and where he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. 
as he sees the crowds, as he sees his enemies, as he sees his followers, as he sees his family. Jesus utters these words. Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. As he was being rejected on the cross, Jesus was saving us. He was saving those very people who were rejecting him. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, dear friends, you have been healed. So who is Jesus? Is he your Savior? Is he the Son of God as Mark is trying to portray? Or is he someone that you're rejecting at this moment? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is such a, a long and again weighty text. I have not covered everything that this text is trying to relate. But we do get really the gist of, of who you are. And it shows us that you are a compassionate king, that you are a humble savior, that you care for the needs of others, you care for those who are hurting physically, but more importantly, you care for those whose hearts are hard. And so we rely on the promise that you forgive all of our sins through the cross, that it is through your life, it is through your death, and it is through your resurrection that you saved us And so, Father, let us be reminded once again that it is on the cross you said, Father, forgive them, forgive the people, forgive Gateway, for they don't know what they do. That is yet a profound reminder of the gospel to us. Lord, you will continually shake us down by your grace. And maybe some of us do not know you here this morning. Jesus Christ. If you do know him, 